Hello and welcome to Real History. This is the podcast where we discuss uh, usually films, books, television, uh, <laughs> other forms of fiction and we examine the historical elements within the ones we've chosen and discuss, well, to what degree is this really any kind of good indicator of the history that it's covering? And we usually give it a score towards the end. However, today this is a very special episode. Uh, it is our first episode with a uh, historian as a guest. Um, it is a game, probably going to be slightly longer than usual as well, since we're no longer in on broadcast. We're directly downloadable as a podcast. Um, and if you have directly downloaded us to listen, thank you very much indeed. Like and subscribe. Um, to, and so today we have a very special guest to discuss some, a different way of putting uh, fiction into the world, which is theme parks. Mm-hmm. And very specifically, the big daddy of them all, Disney theme parks. <laughs> this is something... I wonder who could have... Got been very passionate about this. Yes, regular listeners will <laughs> probably have guessed that this is entirely within Jenna's wheelhouse. So, my <laughs> co-host and co-producer is Jenna Pateman. Hi. Hello. Uh, who is just on the verge of moving from being undergraduate to graduate in history, and hopefully maybe doing masters, <laughs> as well as being a member of the British History Association. Yes. So, uh, uh, committee member for two different committees and oh, seriously join your local HO. There we go. And our guest today is uh, Sabrina Mittermeier. Um, Dr. Mittermeier, I believe. Yeah, actually, I do have a doctorate. I, I don't need to necessarily lead in with that, but it, I do have it. And it happens <laughs> to be in uh, cultural history. Um, and I only have that doctorate because I wrote a dissertation um, on the Disneyland theme parks and that's going to come out as a book uh this october with intellect in the uk um and university of chicago press in Ooh. the united states oh wow so, yeah i'm a big big fan of their stuff uh, yeah fantastic uh and we're here to talk about both the theme parks but also your book as well. yes um you know this is part of the promotion for it um and we but it's also because it's something it's something that just we hadn't considered when we started doing the podcast series was the idea of looking at something that is um, as yeah. I'd forgotten that when I was a kid, a lot of what got me, what kept my interest in Vikings going, was going to Thorpe Park in Britain, Yay. going on the Viking <laughs> ship. And I thought, and, and and remembering that, I suddenly thought, well, actually, you guys are both spot on. Um, this is exactly the sort of thing we should be covering in the podcast. Because this is, the you know, theme parks are a way in which the the general public sometimes, for the first time, can encounter for his, you know expressions of history itself, mm. as well as you know the whatever it is that the people who set these up or, or create the rides or, or envisage from these parks beyond the commercial, you know whatever it is they have to say. Um, so I'm going to let you guys talk because this is obviously your specialist area. And I will put my hand up every now and then with questions. <laughs> uh, Jenna, would you like to take it away? Yeah, I mean, I think first things first is to mention the fact that this just came around from us nattering on Twitter, um, mostly moaning about how hard it is to find sources for being Disney academics, um, which led into a very interesting conversation with a lot of other Disney academics, which was really good fun. And so... Me and Sabrina met, and we got nattering, and this is the episode for it. So, yes, um, 
so I guess first we should sort of talk about how Disneyland sort of came about because that before Disneyland theme parks weren't really a thing they or they weren't what we imagine they were more like sideshows and pier attractions and they had a what's the word um they were for the lower middle class, lower classes kind of thing. And it wasn't until Disney sort of came along and saw his kids on the carousel, which is the famous story, that he decided that he wanted to build a theme park. Because that's what Disney does. He's like, hey, I want to go do this now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, also, I'm sitting here nodding and then realizing nobody can see me nod. Um, <laughs> Oh, this is the fun of podcasting. Yeah. Uh, um, for the audience at home, I'm nodding. Um, no, so what happened was that the idea of the theme park or the form of the theme park is actually something that does come about because Disney is doing that. Um, mm. So before that, it's amusement parks. So even today, if you talk about the thing that comes before Disneyland, um, you would refer to it as amusement parks. And I mean, it's it's kind of tricky because the research on it is only really just happening now. Like I've seen seen a wave of stuff coming out, such as mm. uh, Rebecca Williams, um, who Jenna also knows from Twitter, and um, I think the Fan Studies Network yes. um, has just published a book on theme park fandom. Um, for instance. So all of this is coming out. But before that, like even when I was writing, there isn't all that much work that's been done before. So all of these definitions are kind of tricky. So at some point, I had to come up with my own definition of the theme park, obviously based on others. But most of the others that were there came from the tourism industry, basically, um, and not really from like an academic point of view on it. And so yeah but before it's amusement parks and i think you can tell that there's a very important difference between what comes before and what disneyland does which is storytelling really Mm. because amusement parks i mean they have the rides they have the food they have shows and other kinds of entertainment they have all of that even the singular rides may have a theme to it um but there isn't like an overarching theme for the whole Space and there isn't a storytelling idea behind it. And that's what Disneyland does. And theme parks all over the world do today. Um, so that that is really the thing. And yeah, so basically Walt Disney, I mean, the origin story of it all, I guess it's always kind of debatable because obviously the company has a vested interest in kind of mythifying the origin story of it all. Mm. But it's true that Disney was very interested in looking at entertainment of that sort he also just he went to Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen Um, when he was traveling to Europe he went to um, like different things uh, in the US as well so world's fairs obviously like his father had worked on a world's fair Um, and and he visited the 39 world's fair I believe and um so all of these influences. He also was a huge nerd for model trains yes. and miniatures. <laughs> and you can kind of see that in a lot of what the park looks like. So it, all of this comes together. And there's also that moment where, I mean, the, the Disney studios get big 
with the 1930s onwards. So, but nobody can visit them. Even to this day, the Disney studios are one of those studio lots you cannot just, as a normal tourist, no. go take um, a tour of. So that was also kind of a, a motivation behind it because people wanted to see, you know, where the movies were made, which obviously then Disneyland didn't deliver on, but at the same time, it was a way for, for people to to visit the movies, so to speak, and, and meet Mickey Mouse and all of that. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting um, because of part of my dissertation, because I did about how the World's Fair yeah. influence and then um, inspired Walt and the Disney company to building... Disneyland and then expanding after the 1964 World's Fair um, it went from a little park that was supposed to be across the street from the studios in Burbank yeah. to this massive let's buy up hundreds of uh, acres of Orange Grove and build a massive castle so it Disney does not do things by half and this is the one problem with refer with this company when referring to Walt Disney and Disney, and I guess it will get a little. And then also Roy Disney is a very important part of the story. I guess it's just going to get a little messy. Yeah, I mean, look, the thing is, what most people end up doing is saying Walt. Yes, um, he was very much everyone called me by my first name as well. Yeah, and I so, mean again that that plays into kind of the myth around the men as well, but it makes it easier in in. In yes. writing as well, because obviously yeah. when I write, it's like I have to distinguish between Mr. Disney and uh, the Disney company, but mostly Walt is what you end up saying, because otherwise you get very, very confused. Yeah, I remember <laughs> with um, writing my dissertation, I had to put a note at the beginning saying, look, I'm referring to Walt Disney as Walt, even yeah. though I know that's not the correct way we write, but... It's to avoid yeah. confusion. And Again, even if you do Mr. Disney or like, which you wouldn't, you would always just use the last name and then, yeah, yeah it defeats the purpose. So, <laughs> um, he, he did want to put over that this image of friendliness, everyone's uncle. Um, and he did do that, which is great. And yes, there are a couple of problematic things about him, but at the end of the day, there's problematic things about every single person on this planet. So I I think what he achieved with Disneyland was amazing. And it set up the tourism industry kind of for now. I mean, you look at how many other theme parks there are around the world and almost every single theme park has a train that goes around the outside. And that is directly from Disneyland because... He only he put a train in because he loved trains. That's pretty much the only reason. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he certainly has a massive influence. He always seemed to have kind of an, an idea what like the zeitgeist was. Um, yes. So he had a very good feeling for that. Um, he wasn't as concerned with the money. That doesn't mean he wasn't made out to make the money. He definitely was, but he just wasn't the guy that was looking at the numbers. Other people yeah, that was his were brother. doing that. His brother was doing that, but obviously, <laughs> at other points, like I mean, it's a massive company at that point already. So yeah. I mean, there's other people that can concern themselves with making the financial uh, calculations work. Um, and yeah, I mean, so many theme parks obviously then model themselves on Disneyland. Um, mm. And I mean, in, in, in Germany, there's Europa Park, 
um, which blatantly like stole the park <laughs> icon from Epcot. Like it's the same <laughs> thing. Um, like the, the kind of the globe them like the, the spaceship Earth and Epcot yeah. and the Eurostar thing in, in Europa, Europa Park. And um, I said the wrong name probably because they keep changing it, but like right. the icon of it. And at some point they needed a mascot for the park and they chose a mouse. And I'm like, come <laughs> on. Um, I mean, Europa Park is still fun. They have a few really good rides. It's a really nice park, but it's just some of the things that were blatantly copied. Like there's a there's a copy of basically Pirates of the Caribbean, um, all of these things, just because they came such well-known staples. There's even a rumor or like, I mean, I found a source for it in a cast member magazine, so a Disney employee magazine, um, that when they built... Euro Disney or now Disneyland Paris, they chose to not do the Jungle Cruise because at that point, par theme parks in Europe had basically done their own versions of them. And so mm. Disney would look like being the ones that stole from them <laughs> rather than the uh, other way around. And also, never mind the fact that, well, you know, the Jungle Cruise is rather problematic. And yes. also, <laughs> it is very, very expensive to build. So, you know, yeah, there, there's probably of, uh, different, different things coming in there. But yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of audio animatronics in the Jungle Cruise. And also, it being outside mostly would also make it. Yeah. I mean, the Jungle bit... Cruise is like a completely like. I mean, it, you need you need to build this massive artificial jungle and water. Yeah. Like, not, none of that was in Anaheim before. Like, it's a massive undertaking. So, mm. um, yeah. I mean, I mean, just let, let's be honest. If if the if we had, weren't in the middle of a pandemic, the release of the Jungle Cruise movie, if it was a runaway success, they'd be putting the money in to build them everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, because you know, it's it, it's got the rock in it. You know, it's probably going to be a big success. <laughs> Yeah, it will probably do fine. Yeah. I mean, it looks fun as well. It's just a question of what they're going to do with it. Yeah, I mean... exactly. But I, I do wonder sometimes if, if, if that... I often, as a movie fan, I often take the... Uh, the amount of money spent on a film like that as a as a, a sign that there's going to be a lot of merchandise and things in the real world. Yeah. And, and, and often it's a good gauge of can you revamp something that's problematic on a number of levels. You know, if you can reinvent the 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 what would have been once the, the sort of the the, the um, Humphrey Bogart-esque character as a slightly more mixed race guy, then you've got a uh, a slightly more appealing take on things and, I, and, and, and as long as they don't go too far down the dumb native thing, you know. We could yeah. end up with something that's genuinely entertaining on a, on a on a level like the '90s mummies, and that would get kids wanting to go. To yeah, it. and I mean Jumanji is obviously also something that was always very similar to that, and then they yes. rebooted that and apparently did okay with it. I refuse to watch it because Robin Williams isn't in it. But um, I've heard from other people that the new Jumanji movie isn't actually half bad. I don't know. They're but, excellent. I can yeah. honestly tell you they're excellent. I literally just bought the 4K triple set on half price because. We went to see them in the. I, I didn't see the first one in the cinema. Like you, I was like, I'm not going to go see it. And then my partner went and saw it with friends, and they loved it so much. And when I watched it on video, on home video with them on Blu-ray, I was just like, Why did I? Why did I pass this up? This is absolutely 
superb um and the sequel's even better and it's 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 got the clever things in it that people like us like to look for in films you mm. know in terms of mm. being true to the spirit of the writer mm. and the source in the franchise because Jake Kasdan as writer and director you okay. know I mean he's a chip off the old block his dad is Lawrence Kasdan of okay. Star Wars and Body Heat fame um and Jake Kasdan is 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 very is both respectful but also clearly someone who loves video games and it, as, as as a video gamer, that was a big part of the fun was seeing how this translates into video games, but then becomes a commentary on video games, um, as well as in the first. Given that the first film and book is because I we rewatched the first, I just rewatched the first film on Sunday night. Um, the I'd forgotten to some degree the importance of the 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 whole Disney esque idea of bringing together the the the, the family that isn't quite a family. Mm. throughout the adventure i'd forgotten the importance of the thematic aspects i'd forgotten that the the hunter is his dad and it's this whole subtext on father's i mean i'm watching it on father's day and there's this subtext <laughs> about father son masculinity and 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 the fact that williams's character turns his back on that traditional masculinity when he's talking to the the boy when he's become a uh, becoming turning into a monkey and I thought that was really, that's the one thing I wasn't expecting them to engage with in the modern films. And it's not engaged with to the same degree, but there is a nice Breakfast Club style variety of characters and variety of issues. Um, so I will, I will put in a, a plug for the new one. I think it's, despite the lack of Robin Williams, I think it's well worth uh, watching the new ones. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, derailing the conversation. That's what I do. <laughs> that's my I'll let you guys get back to it. Sorry. Theme park. <laughs> Germany ripoff. Anyway, yeah, General Cruz. Um, I, I don't know what we want to go back to. Actually, um, I mean, we were still trying to talk about the origins of Disneyland and then sidetracked ourselves. I think. Yeah, it, um, it's what happens on this podcast often. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think you guys have given us, a, you know, you've you've been giving us a good look into the um into into the origin. So let, let's connect what you've said and. The, how we get from amusement parks to Disney theme parks. You've talked about the influences. You've talked about how uh, theme parks that come. You know, there is a before and after. I will Disney's quickly in this mention. Um, we have to mention Black Sunday, which is uh, the opening day for Disneyland, mm -hmm. because it went so badly that it's now infamous. Like. Uh, the tarmac wasn't quite set, so ladies' shoes were sinking into the tarmac. There were malfunctions on the rides. Um, there was... Um, they didn't have enough water fountains because Disney had... Walt had to choose between uh, whether or not water fountains got done or the toilets got done. And he was like, well, mm -hmm. the toilets have to be done. And it was kind of... It's kind of like that last minute scramble that all students and uh, have towards the end when your deadline's like, ah, I need to get this done. <laughs> so, yeah, um, if you, I would recommend people research Black Sunday because it is fascinating and it's quite a good laugh. And I mean, there is a there is a whole live broadcast of it as well. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, not Ronald Reagan, not the Richard Nixon. Ronald oh, Reagan, yeah. who at that point was still like he was an actor and yeah. um, and the, you know entertainment personality of some sort, as well because he was one of the um, 
hosts of the live broadca broadcast of mm -hmm. the opening of Disneyland Park. Um, and yeah, I mean, they had like, I think four camera teams all over the park. And, yeah. and because it was live, all of that, like not all of that, but a bunch of things also went wrong as they're bound to do. Um, like for instance, in Frontierland, they were gonna have, um, you know, the actors of Davy Crockett, which like was massive at the time, yeah, like, kind of riding, riding into um, Frontierland for the opening of that part of the park. And then somehow a water sprinkler set off and they got doused and then were completely <laughs> wet by the time they got there. Um, Brilliant. So all of these things happen. Um, and this was all excavated by the facts of uh, people had faked tickets and yeah. there was thousands upon thousands of extra people they weren't expecting. Yeah, I know basically. one guy sold, um, he brought a ladder and sold for like a couple of dollars. You could sneak over the ladder to get into Disneyland. <laughs> great, great. Uh, <laughs> oh, Black Sunday is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and yes, they made it. I mean, that's astonishing. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I I'm, I'm trying to get my head around the idea of somebody in this day and age now risking an, a, a live broadcast in that manner. That's mm. just uh, the, the yeah, t television in as a business has come so far. That's really well, it was funny. Part of the deal he made with ABC because yeah. uh, ABC put a lot of money into Disneyland. And also, as a part of it, uh, he was making the weekly TV series that was basically an advertisement for Disneyland. Yeah. And also talking about the influences and talking about the rides and showing week by week how this was developing. So it built all this excitement. So that was another reason that it got so crowded so quickly. Right. Yeah, it's, because... It's... Is this sorry? Can I just ask? Is this why ABC to this day remains part of the Disney Empire? Uh, yes or no? I mean, the the thing is, so back then they they didn't own ABC. Like, it, right. I mean, it's the fifties, so television yeah, is just really developing as a medium, true. and true. Um, there were three networks, and ABC was sort of the third one. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so they were desperately looking for basically setting themselves apart and getting reason why people should tune in and they struck this deal with disney and he was one of the right. like only um hollywood studio modules basically that that actually believed in television as a medium at the time yes. because it was kind of the, the lesser medium to film yes, um and and he he's like well you know um we're gonna make this deal you're you're one of the big sponsors basically of Disneyland, but we're producing the show Disneyland. And yeah, as Jenna said, it's like this glorified advertisement, but at the same time, like there's a lot of content produced just for the show, um, like Davy Crockett, which then blows up massively. Like if you followed the Frozen craze over the last few years, I mean, it's... I have a six-year-old. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, basically, David Crockett was the same for kids in the 1950s. It was massive. Oh, it didn't stop in the 50s. It was still on television yeah. written in the 70s when I was a kid, and I loved it. But but like yeah. you have to believe there were the massive amounts of merchandise being yes. sold. Oh yeah, and, you could still get yeah. some of the, Yeah, there was still yeah. No, absolutely. I wanted a, the, the the hat and the gun when I was a kid in the yeah. 70s. <laughs> You know, it was it was up there with playing the now politically correct and rightly so uh, cowboys and Indians. You know, you play that in the in the 
in the in the in the playground with kids, and there was all you know. I was the kid who went, "Can I be Davy Crockett, please?" You know, <laughs> because I didn't want to be a cowboy. You know, it's it's kind of yeah. It yeah. it was it was game changer for them. That was as yeah, and yeah. and so yeah, the television show got also really really popular, and it really also put ABC um on kind of on the radar more. Um, but it it takes a lot longer um for for Disney to take over ABC. But I guess they okay. always had that relationship anyway, so it it Fair wasn't enough. as much of a stretch for them to at some point buy it, I guess. But I mean that's what they've been doing over the last few years, just buy everything. Um. True. <laughs> um, so yeah, so coming back to the actual to the the parks themselves, and so the the initial. So the opening is 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 disastrous in various ways, and yet nevertheless, success could be argued to be successful on the basis of the numbers. I guess if it's that yeah. busy. Yeah, it was only a few months or a year after they welcomed their millionth guest. I think it was. Okay. Yeah, so it doesn't that's... take them very long to reach no. that. So, so they become a success very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, on that basis, as you said, this this ties back to what you both were saying earlier about the uh, way in which it then becomes influential. Mm. Um, yeah. And 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 people, you know, it becomes the model for what they're trying to do. Yeah, there was yeah. Um, many. There was quite a few cities and other places that were like, "Hey, do you fancy come building one of those things here?" To. Mm. Up mm. the tourism. Um, I think Philadelphia was one. Mm. I think I can't remember. There was a couple. Um, I think St. Louis was also considered. Um, but it's you can see like the fact of Anaheim itself, although it's outside of LA, was this quite t- quiet little space, and then suddenly you have a massive tourism industry like you have hotels and motels and diners and all this stuff opening around Disneyland which Walt absolutely hated him because yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was like well it's ruining what we've made it's not to the aesthetic I made, I wanted um, so that's when they go on the Disney World project You, they buy so much land so then no one can build around the park and which because i think the land is something like the size of greater manchester it's absolutely huge oh it's several times the size or it's i think it's about the size of manhattan or even something like that yeah Uh, yeah it's huge um and yeah but that's the thing make this that what what wall Disney refers to her as brawl. Like it's it's just all of these like kind of side industries build springing up around Disneyland Park in Anaheim. Um, and I mean the remoteness of it again was kind of part of the idea. And back then it was a thing because obviously this is the fifties. So again, people are that is when everybody moves to the suburbs. And by mm. everybody, I mean actually the white people move to the suburb. It's a white flight. And that's also the point of like one of the, the main arguments or the, the subtitle of my book is middle class kingdoms because from the yeah. beginning on they don't like um, the target audience is always the middle to upper class obviously but the ideal of the 1950s middle class which was obviously white um and and heteronormative and kind of the ideal family and and all of that but i mean moving to the suburbs was part of that so 
um, Disney being Disneyland being that remote is kind of part of it. And you could you needed the car to go there, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, and everybody had their car at that time. And again, everybody meaning the white middle class family that they actually cared about. Um, and yeah, but then kind of <laughs> in the in the in the process of that, the city of LA, which has never actually been a city, LA is like <laughs> it's like several counties, counties coming together. Yeah. But in that in that process, kind of the counties start to develop around there as well. And it's no longer this kind of remote space. So again, yeah, when they go to Florida, it's like it, they want it to be remote. So they go outside of Orlando um, by massive amounts of land secretly at first. And then, yes. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a an American frontier tradition. This is yeah. find the bit you want, and if you're wealthy enough, buy up all the land, and off you go. Yeah, and you know, the, the idea of a sprawl coming along is inevitable, really. I mean, it's 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 the towns that threw themselves up around the rail, the railway, isn't it? It's that mm. whole. It's it's the way America the the America we that that is there the the nation the the kind of European style. Uh, America is 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 built, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean Disneyland also in terms of kind of the the literal gatekeeping that happens with that is obviously it costs money to get into. Like it's kind of sold as this, like you know, one one price for all thing. Um, and I mean at first it isn't really because at first you have to buy an entrance ticket and then you buy a ticket book for the rides. Um, and oh, only wow. later does it change to like the all-inclusive pricing structure we have to this very day. But yeah. at the same time, I mean, there's still kind of secondary spending because you have to eat and you have to, like, we don't have to, but a lot of people buy merchandise, all of these things. <laughs> um, and, but the interesting, and, and the interesting thing is this is a longer development as well. So because... Originally, amusement parks obviously didn't—they didn't have an entrance price. They weren't closed off, so that's also what made them more interesting um, for basically everybody, or also kind of a working-class audience, because it was a, to the point of public, more public space. You could walk in, you buy for the ticket, the right ticket you want to get in, um, and the same with kind of more public parks. But even before Disneyland public parks start to get closed off um, and 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 effectively like shut out not only the working class but also effectively you know mostly people of color um, and obviously I mean if you go to the segregated south and the US they're already literally segregated but also in other parts of the country um, all of these processes take place so they kind of develop from more and more public parks actually turn into private spaces or these sort of gatekeep spaces and Disneyland is kind of the extreme version of that. So, um, so that that raises some interesting questions because obviously there's for the, given what we're here to talk about as a podcast I think one of the things so to me there's two levels of interest one is the the way in which which we haven't one this is the bit we haven't tackled yet which is the way the the the, the elements of the park inside the park the rides themselves the concepts of what are put forward um you know convey notions of you know perceive perceived elements of history right mm, that's one yeah. side of it and we touched on that very briefly with the mention of jungle cruise the other side of it for me is what you're talking about now which is this this the the the, the, the way in which the very f the, the the very parks themselves 
represent, as you say, this kind of they they become a kind of solidified, commercialized version or aspect of things that are in existence in American society at that time, and 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 in some ways I don't think they've ever not. I I feel like they've always represented that to some degree mm. to this day because I I know uh, like like. Uh, just to bring a you know, to talk to speak as a fan, I've never had any interest in going to the parks mm-hmm. ever, and and I don't say that because I'm a, I'm not a fan in the way Jen is a fan or my, or my fr- other friends I have are a fan. I, I, I'm a fan in the sense that growing up in the seventies with television in Britain and then being able to go to the cinema, anything that was accessible with kids was frequently disney but also there was a great deal this was the heyday of disney live action stuff mm, so you know uh freaky friday and and all that sort of thing right uh, yeah yeah and and um uh, witch mountain and all that stuff and so that was the stuff i got to go and see in the cinema on the, on the video um but my first film in the cinema ever was uh the, i think it must, must have been a re-release of um uh, the 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 Robin Hood the animated Robin Hood mm-hmm. um, and my the first cassette I ever bought myself the first album I bought myself was a Disney best of um, and 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 it, because it was just there you didn't you know it wasn't the only thing going into my eyeballs there was Jerry Anderson there was Doctor Who there's all this <laughs> other stuff but it's the thing I can remember feeling special feeling different feeling f- f- compared to my British life it felt fantastical. You know, Doctor Who and Jerry Anderson are wonderful and, uh, as, as, as sci-fi, but they're very, they're British. They still sound like they are set where I lived as a kid, and mm. and so they seem more within the realm of possibility. So, so to me, it made more sense that I might pilot a Thunderbird than <laughs> I might end up in a Disney park. Um, and I and I think that's partly because we didn't have the money for it. We didn't travel very often. I mean, yes, we were middle class, but we were very much. Um, lower middle class in financial terms because we were ref- uh, refugee, political refugees to this country, so it was hard work. And I think Disney always seemed to me uh, well, well, exactly what you said, but writ large, you know. Yeah. It, it, the, 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 the parks themselves, the, the logo with the park, it always just seemed to me like, well, I can't go there. Yeah, I mean, it's it is interesting to the, it, like it, it remains, I think, in many ways that thing. Either either it's perceived as I can't go there, but for many that also means it's kind of this thing to aspire to. Um, it's like it, it's turned into this kind of still like I mean the icon of like oh I've reached middle class whatever that may mean i mean that's a constant shifting term like it's and and then every every so often it's like well the middle class is dying etc like um <laughs> the more capitalism evolves but like in the again in the 50s with the with the economic boom and the actual growing middle class it's this big thing that they're actually catering to and they never really stopped so it's it 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 is very interesting when you go to to then like china um, as they've done now, and I mean, I mean, mainland China because Hong Kong is a it's a more complicated story as well. But like now in Shanghai, it's a massive success, apparently because it for many it's like this thing of like oh well you know um, 
if I if we have a Disneyland, we're kind of modern, whatever that may mean as well. But like these ideas of modernity and at the same time also of middle mm. to upper classness is like when I can afford to go to Disneyland, then I'm this type of person. Um, and and having in that in the country is a sign of I don't know pride and economic achievement. And I mean this is also from a perspective of I think a very small part of the actual Chinese population, obviously. And um and but also but the but the government of the People's Republic of China yeah. thinks no, that, ma- that makes sense. Yeah. Um but it was the same kind of process apparently in the nineteen eighties Japan where they also kind of saw the fact that they were opening a Disneyland there and they actually actively like they were it was a Japanese effort to bring Disneyland to yeah. Tokyo rather than the other way around. Um because it was this sign of like an idea of modernity that was very westernized um, and to have that um, in their own country because Japan was going through an economic boom in the 80s. So that also worked out well for them because suddenly people had the money to come, people also got more leisure time than they had before, etc, etc. So it always seems to be the same processes at work whenever these parks successfully open and when they don't open successfully, then something (laughs) must have gone wrong. Um, and we can also talk about that because I think that's what everybody always latches on to when talking about Euro Disney because quite famously um, that didn't do so well for a while. Yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> when it opened. I think I was still living in Switzerland at the time and I seem to remember the news. I mean, it was a topic of discussion amongst my friends at the time mm. as adults, but it was also one of those things where um, it was all over the news and it was a big deal. And, and, and I think... Because back then, I don't, I don't know if they still have it. I know we don't have this anymore in Britain, but there used to be um, late night TV in France that allowed, that was basically just a bunch of commentators sitting around, you know, academics and journalists and mm. politicians and whatnot, just having a discussion about the issues of the day. Mm. It's what a, a former friend, a friend of my dad's used to call a real intellectual space. Um, and, you, and and this is this is absent now from a lot of televisions around the world. But it meant that an issue like that would not only come up, but then be discussed intelligently. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was a real kind of eye opener because it's it's very much the sort of thing, Sabrina, that you're doing with your work, where you know I'm getting to hear people who uh, are not simply espousing a simply nationalist view; they're espousing a nuanced, considered viewpoint of what does it mean to have, you know, what is effectively American soft power landing in France in a, in a, an incredibly real and physical way, but also what are the implications in terms of what it means for the next, ge- the, the upcoming generations of French children? You know, what does it mean? You know, yes, it's great for tourism because it means everyone else in the EU will go visit it, but what does it mean for France, you know? And I thought that was a really interesting debate. It made me think really hard about what Disney represented, you know? Mm. Yeah, but I think the the interesting thing is about, and now I can rant forever because I ended up writing over 50 pages about the opening of Euro Disney because it's <laughs> such a... It's such a... It's a much more complicated narrative than I think what the media represented at the time because a lot of the argument was exactly that like this what happens is cultural imperialism like american cultural imperialism and the french just won't have it was kind of the common narrative of why Mm. euro disney didn't work and 
there's some truth to it but i think the 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 overlooked parts for me and that's why i ended up writing so much about it is that so for the longest time when that opened um like actually the first few months of it were very successful yes um because people were flocking there and they were coming from other european countries um they always had a bit more issue drawing French visitors in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was doing fairly well. Like, I mean, there was a backlash to it before it ever opened, but that came mostly from a very, very much French intellectual elite, um, which which caused a media stir. But in terms of deterring people from actually going there, not yeah. so much. Like, nobody yeah. was actually listening to these people because why would they? Um, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, people might... You know, I was in my twenties, and, and you know, there were people, and the, the people I know were, were were going to go see it. You know, it's like, yeah, it's yeah. Said, we can get on a train. We're going. It's like, what, are you kidding? I can save a flight. <laughs> exactly. It's, considering uh, Eurostar goes directly into Disneyland, um, yeah, yeah. Is a big deal and as well. So that was a whole thing. So people definitely wanted to go, no matter what, like the French intellectual elite were telling themselves and ca- calling it a cultural Chernobyl and all of these. <laughs> <laughs> very yeah yeah they did um yeah. and and it would taint the blood of france or like there was some really really problematic discourse going on but i mean that really didn't deter people from going um, I think that's why the discourse was like that because they knew it, it, was, it was like the anglicization of the language. It's a losing battle. Yeah, they're not going um, to change the pathway that the next generation. And, are but on. the thing is, so it does well when it eventually opens. But what what then actually happens is a man- massive financial crisis in Europe, mm. and that really hurts. <laughs> and I mean, because I mean, this is like. It opens in 92, so the Berlin Wall has come down. Um, There's first discussions about the EU, like, I mean, the form of the EU we have now, and then certain countries now suddenly want to leave. Um, And, uh, and, and, but all of this is just happening. So, um, and, like, I'm probably going to forget aspects of it now, but one of the most important things is that happens is that there's a massive recession financial crisis happening so suddenly a lot of the people that wanted to come can't anymore because Mm, de facto i think for a while also with like currency fluctuations because again we don't have a euro yet we don't have the euro for almost another 10 years Mm -hmm. um it's it's more um, financially feasible i think it's cheaper to go to Florida, to Walt Disney World, then go to Euro Disney. If you're, I oh, think, well, yeah. in 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 Germany, or especially also in the UK, I forget which which country's numbers I had. But for a lot of people, it's suddenly, I think, especially for the English, with the currency conversion from the pound to the franc back then, it was cheaper to fly to the US to Walt Disney World in Florida. Also, with yeah. going to the US uh, parks, you don't have the risk of weather. Because yeah. uh, Disneyland Paris is actually the only Disney park I've been to so far. And I just remember getting absolutely drenched by rain. Oh, God. I've, <laughs> I've been very much rained out in Paris before. But I think yeah. weather weather was definitely a thing. But then also, like, like that alone also wouldn't do it. And so the, the financial crisis keeps a lot of the tourists away. Um, 
and what also happens is like Disney, like they're they the projections for the park are massive. Like they 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 think it's a massive success, and they're not completely arrogant or off base to think so before mm. they open. So what they do is yeah. they build a lot of hotels that are still there to this very hotel, uh, mm. to this very hotel, to this very day. Um, there's like five or six hotels that Disney, like they're themed, they belong to the park. Disney has them designed by all these postmodern architects. It's this massive thing. But the plan always was that once the hotels are built, they're going to sell them. Mm. And then the financial crisis happens and they can't sell them and they can't reach the capacity they would need and, and it all spirals and so there's that and then because there is that amount of kind of negative publicity around that then there's also a massive dispute with the employees who um, don't want to confirm conform to kind of the employee service standards that disney wants to put on them and the kind of wages mm. they want to pay them because there's a massive disparity between the American service culture and Western European and especially French service mm -hmm. standards and culture um, in the tourism industry. It's like, that's a whole thing that is another massive scandal in the media and the press, especially within France. So I think it does deter some of the French people from going. And then you have a problem because you can't oper operate one of these resorts year round if you don't um half the locals like you don't have the annual pass holders um yeah. or the at least local visitors come during the holiday disney also has absolutely no understanding how europeans vacation because they're like yeah. oh my sure. god they have so many more like we have what five weeks of holiday in the summer <laughs> Um, that's great. And we have all these other holidays and Americans have like a combined, they can go away for one or two weeks at a time. So obviously if you're an American, you can go away for a week. You're much more likely to just go to one place, stay there for the whole week and go back home because it's, it just takes so much time and energy and money to go from place to place. However, we have five or six weeks, so we can easily do that. Um, so we're not going to spend over a whole week in Disneyland. However, yeah. if you're in the US, you very easily do that at Walt Disney World. And they try to export that idea of the resort to here. Mm. Um, by here, like I mean Western Europe. Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a resort in, Euro in Europe, our idea of a resort is somewhere that's by the Mediterranean with some sun. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's there's... not rainy northern France. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, look, France does get very sunny in the summer. It's not even just that. It's, but it's, the idea that we would stay in the same place for a week, if we yeah. could then also travel, what what actually, especially with Disneyland and where it's located, you might take a trip to France if you're German. Like from my perspective, my parents yeah. would actually also drive to France and stay yep. in a like rental like apartment or share a vacation home with friends or whatever. And it would be completely possible to then like say, oh, we're going to take a day trip to Disneyland. Yes. But that would yeah. be the thing. Whereas, you know, they were kind of trying to sell this resort idea. And that just didn't really resonate. And because yeah. another argument is why it doesn't resonate, at least the argument that I came to is that they didn't manage to sell Disneyland as that middle to upper class experience at all. I 
think you're right. Thinking mm. back to the time, thinking back to the advertising, thinking back to the communication that I saw in the media to yeah. myself, to my friends. Because I, 92, I was finishing university in Britain and going back to Switzerland. And I was traveling, so I was in both countries. And I can remember my English friends, because I had some English friends who had a, 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 a fairly well-to-do middle class, upper middle mm. class. They were thinking of Florida for the summer because... You know, they could afford it. It was cheaper. Gulf War had ended, so people weren't fly- frightened to fly anymore. America was on an was go- also you know was on a bit of a high from that. Um, and I think, and I remember them being like, well, "Well, yeah, I could go to France." But then the other thing was they didn't speak French. You know, they they, no. they were like, "I can go to yeah. America. I speak English." Um, the 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 in terms of middle class aspirations in Britain, certainly, I don't think it uh, operated the same way. But I think within Europe, without a doubt, you go. You know, where I was in Switzerland it was is you know, Switzerland is pretty much super, very middle class as oh, a yeah. country. You know, um, and. Um, yeah, no, nobody there I knew, even though it was not a hard thing. Like you say, you get in a car. We did, my, my parents, we did that all the time. We got, my dad was busy exploring the vineyards at that point. We got, <laughs> got into wine. So every holiday, we got in a car and drove across the Jura into Bordeaux, you know? And mm-hmm. it's like, and, and Burgundy, and this, all that sort of thing. And it's like, actually, this is the problem, isn't it? You're, you're, you're putting down something that is that has... It's an aspirational, as you say, it's aspirational and it, it's middle and upper middle class, but but in a very American way. And that is perhaps, and that is without a doubt different from the way those classes see themselves in Europe. Yeah. And, and what they, at least at the time, I should say. Yeah. Because of course, 91 is Beauty and the Beast animated mm-hmm. which was in it you know which is both a, a, a massive financial success um domestically the international takings are lesser but they still add up very nicely indeed you know i mean france it did 25 million us as a whole on the initial run um which is okay you know for it's not great but it's okay um uh but but it's also you know, there, there was for some people in europe it was like oh look disney are doing our, our stories again Mm-hmm. They're not just doing American stories. You know, there was this there were, for most people. Most of the, the 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 wider media discussion was, "Oh my God!" You know, the Americans are you know, the Disneyfying France again, just as you said earlier. But and and that's part of what led into that attitude with regard to the building of the park. Yeah. But the film itself was for for younger viewers was very much a kind of, "Oh, is this what all the our older siblings and parents are going on about? Is this what Disney's about?" Um, and I think that was kind of it was it was not an illogical to put it. The, the timing wasn't a bad timing. Uh, it was more a question of, as you say, it's the concept, the, the theme. They, they're not they're not fully comprehending their own subtext, are they? As as a park. Yeah, <laughs> I think the and the the class argument also still stands because I think by the time like the, the Europeans know what amusement parks are again, like Tivoli Gardens yeah. exist. We know that kind of thing. We also have older parks like that in Germany and, and all these places in the UK. I mean, all the seaside resorts and the, all of that thing. So, but for us, again, it's this kind of, it's it's not something we connect to like a middle-class resort no. vacation experience. It's a day trip. It's kind of a fun time maybe um, to, you know, go there, possibly even with the family, but it's, yeah. It's just not that kind of experience that Disney actually is selling at the time. So, um, and it's interesting if you look at some of the literature, some of them, and that's kind of what I stuck my argument on in the end was like, oh, well, you know, they didn't attract a theme park 
public and I'm and I went back and was like hold up what do you actually mean by theme park public I think you mean yes. lower class yes and and I think that's also you know um that's problematic in and of itself because it came from like some um like econ researchers basically but it's like <laughs> But it's like, it's interesting because, you know, that's, that's kind of the ingrained idea that a lot of them have that certainly also the French intellectual elite has. So I think that, and so all of this is really just so much more complicated than saying, well, you know, the French rejected us because they're yeah, too yeah. sophisticated for mass entertainment. No, they're well, not. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course not. The Germans can, can aren't people... either. Like, it's not yeah. as, like, come on. Um, no, but, yeah. no offense. I, I prefer mass entertainment when it's French or German. <laughs> you know, I always have. But um, yeah, no, I think that, that that's an absolutely fascinating strand to all of this. Um, so we've talked about Disney. We've talked about America. We've talked about the concept. Very quickly mentioned with Disneyland Paris. I do think it's interesting how they did Frenchify some of the lands but not all of them, like uh, Tomorrowland in Disneyland Paris is very much based on Jules Verne. It would ha- well, yeah, but, but, and that's clever because that is, in the sense that that is a cultural, that, that is someone going, well, this other version isn't going to work. Yeah. You know, shiny 50s sci-fi goodness is not inherently French. You know, uh, early you know, 1890s, <laughs> you know sh- oh boy do i have an argument for you in a second oh, go for it. i, go for it, I don't believe any of this is actually french or frenchified um which was go another thing because the thing is um so yeah they're marketing it as we're gonna frenchify it basically or make it more european or whatever um because basically there's pressure from the french government to do so however if you really look at the design of the park and what they're doing, all of these ex- ideas have existed before and they have existed in Anaheim, mm. including uh, Jules Verne. Because, of course, uh, 20,000 Leagues, they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they did of a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie the in 1954. Yeah. And the Nautilus, like that Nautilus walkthrough that you have in your Disney or like Disneyland Park now um, in, in Paris is is something that very similar very similar thing exists in 1950s Tomorrowland in Anaheim. Uh, and well, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That and, makes sense. They just there yeah, they cheat they cheat. And, and <laughs> what re- what really really happens with Tomorrowland and why it turns into Discoveryland is a larger discourse that also happens in the US at the same time because again the 1950s utopian oh everything's going to be great the great big beautiful tomorrow doesn't <laughs> doesn't actually happen any like that's not a not some I, that isn't an idea in the US anymore either at that point in well, the no, 1990s I mean, like, nobody buys into the glorious utopian versions of the future and in 1992 we get the LA riots so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we get a lot of things in 1990. We also have oh, friends, God, it's a, friends of Fukuyama of coming in the end of history, yes. but that's oh, a God. whole other problem. Um, uh, don't even start me on that. That no. was my, my yeah. The, the, we were my final year of, of my law with history degree. That was a fun thing to have to read. Oh, <laughs> to talk God. about. Yes. Um, but so yeah, that's shifting anyway, and they are also remodeling Tomorrowland in Anaheim and in Florida. Like they keep changing it, even long before that. So by the nineties, yeah. definitely. Um, so when they go to Europe, they're basically already like, well, you know, 
we have to do something different, but it's not because it's French, it's because the idea of the future has changed. And so yeah. the safest bet is to go with this kind of like retro future yeah. things, kind of steampunky almost like well, that. Yeah, I mean, that's how yeah. everyone v- visualizes Verne's stuff yeah. these days anyway. And it's mm. also worth pointing out that the French have never mounted their own, have never been able to successfully mount their own film vision of Verne's books in the way that Disney's 20,000 Leagues has it's not it wasn't just you know it wasn't the most successful film as a film it was successful financially and it embedded itself in the imagination of 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 thousands and bit if not millions yeah. you know i mean it was a staple on tv when i was a kid i it was my first experience of Verne before i started reading the books but it got me to read the books um and while i don't while i appreciate the skill with which the film is made it it's to me it's an oddity you know i i look at it as a very kind of it's a, it's it's exactly what i'd expect Disney in America to do with with the, with that text and that idea. Um, so I'm not surprised to hear you say this now, thinking about it. That, mm. yeah. You know, but also, what do we expect from something that is corporately run as well? Of course, you're going to say, well, what else can we reuse? What else can we modify? You know, yeah. you're not going to go out of your way to. If there is pressure on you externally from a PR level, from a public sector level, that doesn't mean as a corporation you're going to go, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Yeah. You're going to look for the most economic way to claim that you've met the standard. Also, I mean, in terms of how these things, so there's two points here. One, one of the things is they start to develop this like over almost almost like eight years before it opens at least, like in wow. early mid-80s, because that's when the original discussions for all of these take place. So all the concepts are being, and then, and it's just delayed because they they reached an agreement uh, with the then French government in the 80s. And then there's elections and Fabius, I think he has to resign, like he like he isn't reelected. And then they have to restart negotiations with the new government. And it takes a whole year and and all of that. But obviously, the designers, the Imagineers, they don't just stop working. So I mean, obviously, all of these concepts get thrown around, but it's that much longer. And the other thing is, in the very concrete case of Discoveryland, Tony Baxter, who is one of the like most prolific oh. Im- Imagineers, um, and was the Love lead Tony designer. Yeah, he's the lead designer for Disneyland Park in Paris. Um, he has a whole concept from 1974, which is called Discovery Bay. And he wanted to put Discovery Bay into Anaheim. And that, again, had all of these, like, Jules Verne, that kind of thing. Because in the 70s, people were already being very, very nostalgic for the 50s. Oh, yeah. Um, and and so he designs all of that based on that kind of thing. So basically, he's already being nostalgic for the stuff that's by then already been taken out of Tomorrowland, but he wants to put it back in elsewhere. Um, and because of out of the plans for Discovery Bay, they also get Big Thunder Mountain, which is the only thing that he ever then from this concept gets to build in Anaheim and mm. elsewhere. But he has this whole concept of all of these kind of retro future things never gets to build them in Anaheim, but that still exists. So all of that, like not all of that, but large chunks of that go into uh, Discovery Land in Paris. And then once the kind of the, in the beginning, the the French government also isn't that keen on, um, on the Frenchifying of it. That only starts towards the 90s. 
Yeah. Well, well, I mean, but there was a there was a definite resurgence of. Uh, of, of 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 nationalist feeling in in, in France and, and identity issues. You given what given the issues that, that had been risen, uh, arisen with John Major, you know, and the negotiations over the EU, and and, and basically making it look like they were you know, basically stalling Britain's involvement in the project, the project that was the EU, and yet at the same time saying, mm-hmm. hey, <laughs> you know, we still get our piece of it. And there was a lot of questions about where France's role in this, the fact that also Gulf War when it happened, was very much a kind of American-led affair within NATO. There was a lot, and then the wall coming down, and, the, and, and you know, the French are amongst the first to say, well, hang on a minute, what does this mean for NATO? Yeah. Where do we go from here? You know, what we've been listening to the Americans all this time, and of course they didn't even see this coming. Where do we go from here? It's an interesting, It was. I, I can honestly say, it wasn't just because I was at uni that it was an interesting time of my life. It was an interesting time to be alive. <laughs> Um, in Europe, I, I I always felt like, especially when you're a historian, you know, yeah. I, if things were happening in real time and you knew that things were going to be, this was all going to be. I I didn't know I'd be having this discussion thirty years later, but I did. <laughs> I you know there was in the, there was so much happening that you kind of look back on it now, and I'm listening to what you're saying, Sabrina, and I'm going, okay, that makes complete sense. That fits with what I saw, what I heard. You know, it's not often that you feel quite often I feel at this time in my life that a lot of sources and discussion deviate from my experience lived experience which is fine because history isn't built just on lived experiences we build it on a number of things Mm. not least sources Mm. um but because of the need to analyze the sources themselves and understand their context um it's kind of nice to have this conversation with you and, and recognize things and go, okay, no. this is this definitely reminds me of, you know, adverts in the newspaper by Disney, you know, or, or, or TV ads or the, the the voiceovers or the things, you know, it remind it, it the, the 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 angles they took on the campaign. See, um, I still remember the Space Mountain adverts that would appear <laughs> on every um, yeah. VHS before every film and getting so hype about it. <laughs> Um, because again, that was sort of more, again, they themed it more to George, uh, George, Jules Verne, because it suited the whole area. And so they were doing it. Oh God, what is the book? What is it? Uh, I can't remember. The one that, where you go to space. Um, (laughs) oh, um, men in the moon. Yes. They sort of. Well, so from the earth to the moon. Yes. So they themed it around that and the cannon shooting you off and that sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I mean the the European like the again the the pressure from the French government to really like Frenchify Europeanize or whatever comes super late. It comes in the early nineties because of again like there's these discussions about European Union and the Euro and and suddenly there's like this resurgence of nationalism. Um and with it kind of the fear of American cultural imperialism again and and, and and that's also when they start pushing for like quotas of how much English language music is allowed to play on the oh. French radio. Oh. Um, yeah, they also stuff, push yeah. for like the the kind of rights bills to be changed to Fran French and and I mean that that is already at the part when the the park is basically finished or even opens. So basically, if they're like, well, make it more French or whatever, like that's way too late in the process for Disney to oh, go. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna make it French because you know it's already built or at least yeah. finalized designs and you have to start building. 
And yeah, um, no, they, 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 yeah. Were, they were very unreasonable like that. I think, but then, but that's part and parcel of French culture. You know, you take it. <laughs> I find it's, I find that's kind of a thing. I'm, I'm, I mean, the fact that every year there was a list of published. I cannot remember the name of which French language association used to publish uh, yeah. every year a list of words that Engl- words from foreign languages that should not be used along with their suggested replacements mm-hmm. and we used to just read that to each other as a laugh yeah because like none of us were going to do like it. one I of th- the yeah in the park that's that's still visible in the park today so they don't have their own term for characters character mates or whatever like oh, personage no. Yeah, because um, um, Chip and Dale is Tick and Tack. Well, that's another thing. Like, I mean, that the characters have their own names. That's a very uh, European thing. Like, German also have different names just because they're the, like, tick, like Chip and Dale have existed since the 30s. So obviously, they've been changed. Yeah. Like, we also don't call them Chip and Dale in Germany. We call yeah, them it's like, of the original dubbing choices. And yeah. Re, you know, so that yeah. that anyway, but then also in the park, like, there's so much of it is kind of French where you could just using the english term basically and the other thing like even like phantom manor um mm. it has the narration by vincent price and it that's that's when the park opens that's still in there and then like and i think even a year in there like no the narration of the ride cannot be in english and they record a french actor doing it mm. and See, up until like what does it know one or two years ago it was French, and then Walt Disney Company now bought back all of Disneyland Paris because at first it was mostly um, like shareholder owned, uh, and they changed it back to the original English. But you see, what's interesting for me about that is I, again, you know, it comes back to also local exp- localized experiences. I mean, I one of the re- ways I learned French as a teenager in the eighties in Switzerland was watching French TV and watching English and American television and film dubbed. So I actually didn't know what any of these people sounded like until mm-hmm. I got hold of VHS tapes or DVDs later on. You know, I mean, it, to this day, uh, there are certain shows I find it really weird to watch in English, <laughs> even though they're in English. And there are certain voice actors who were quite famous for their dubbing careers in live action, let alone animation in the yeah. 80s. And so you, one of the things that was quite common in chat shows as we got into the 90s was you would get a famous American actor being interviewed to promote a film and they would bring on the person who always did their voice. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, you'd have the, and, the, and you'd have that really weird dichotomy of having the person whose voice you associate mm-hmm. sitting there talking with the face of the person next to them. And so I, there, there is, I, you know, I, I hate to say it, as, as an ex-media person, I can also see a commercial reason, rather than a nationalist one, for changing the price narration, because most French go- film goers will be used, will, I mean, will have been used to hearing a different voice in place. Oh, yeah, of obviously. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not even saying it's, it's wrong, but it's definitely it no, comes no, out no, of I'm the, saying... the push well, for, yeah. French. Yeah, no, it's just our audience, I think, are, are mostly English yeah. speakers. So yeah. a lot of them are not familiar with what it's like to be in a country where English language product is consistently dubbed. Oh, yeah, in Germany, uh, that's all we do. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked with several of your of the, the, the dubbing um, companies in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, Berliner Sunkron, and, uh, for example, back in sort of about 15 years ago when I was in anime, um, because we we had a German label. So uh, I love what you... I'm, I But also I used to watch... German dubbed stuff 
as well in Switzerland, you know, because it oh, yeah, it's, like, it's on TV. Yeah. I'll watch it, whatever, you know. And, and I don't, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a really fascinating. I'm fascinated by the process. I'm fascinated by the choices. And and now actually having worked on it from a production side, where you get, you know, you get the auditions and you get the choices make, and you know, you then have to listen through to the 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 the, the, the mixes and and so forth and so on. Um, I think there's, I think, I think it's an unappre- a, it's still a hugely underappreciated art. Oh yeah, um, you know, but it's also important when you are transposing something like something as American as a Disney park into a European context. You know, from a European perspective, it's important that these things engage with our perception of Disney as well. Um, and it sounds to me like that was part of the back and forth, shall we say? Yeah, it was a whole Trash. thing. But I mean, there's also that consistent kind of rumor that. Um, you know, because they didn't sell wine in the park, it was an affront to <laughs> French <laughs> culture. And honestly, it's not like it's one of the things that the intellectual elite picked up on. Because back then, no Disney park um, or at least no Disneyland park would uh, serve alcohol, which has now yeah, changed. But it was a Apart long from, um, from Disneyland Park, Anaheim except for Club 33 in Anaheim, which is the exclusive elite uh, thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You didn't get alcohol in the park because Walt didn't want that to be because because of the of children. Um, oh, of course. I mean, and, we can't have moustaches and we can't But, I mean, that's, that's massively shifted. Um, and, I mean, yeah. uh, but, but there was that whole thing of, like, oh, you can't forbid wine. Like, the French drink wine with every meal, yada, yada, yes. yada. But the thing is, when they finally actually allow wine in at least the table service restaurants in the park it makes zero financial difference because hardly anyone orders it like it's just this kind of like another thing of like oh the french you know they don't Yeah. yeah Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I so interestingly enough, um, while we're having this conversation, we've actually just gone and answered one of the questions that was sent yeah. in by a listener. <laughs> oh, it's not that coincidental because I keep looking at them and weaving ah, them okay, in there sorry, because Sabrina. I'm Fair smart. <laughs> so, Matt Headley, thank you for your question, and I hope we've answered at least the first half of it, which is the oh, yeah, question was: uh, Do you feel that the French's rejection of Euro Disney due to cultural insensitivity during the parks development was justified? Well, I think we've definitely gone into that in detail mm. he then followed that up and I don't know if this is the direction we were going to go Jenna and Sabrina so tell me if you want to leave this for later um, but this other question was do you feel that lessons learned in building up Euro Disney helped Disneyland Hong Kong develop and you did mention China and Hong Kong earlier Sabrina so yeah I mean so the question was also phrased as a matter of cultural sensitivity. Sensitivity. I think that's always difficult because, again, I think, um, again, the Frenchifying the park or something was never even that important. Actually, a lot of people do come to Disneyland because they want an American experience of some mm. sort, um, especially in in the Asian country, like the Asian countries that Disney has built in. Um, and I think that was true for Hong Kong as well. Um, the reason basically why Hong Kong has been struggling is also because they just, when that opened, um, it was barely a park. <laughs> it was yes. minuscule. Like it had oh. a main street. It had a fantasy land with hardly any rights in it. It had a Tomorrowland with hardly any rights in it. And then it had an adventure land. Um, also with hardly any rights in it. 
And it's a pretty park, but there wasn't all that much to see and do, mostly because after kind of the financial disaster that was Euro Disney, they were very, very cautious about investing too much money from the get-go. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, Hong Kong is difficult because obviously it's a British colony um, until the handover in 1998. And... Disney is already starting, and then the the Hong Kong government starts negotiations with Disney. I mean, Disney actually wants to go to mainland China first, but they can't at the time because it's it's like it, they have difficult negotiations with the government of the People's Republic of China that doesn't really work out. And so they basically the Hong Kong government, which is then still a bit more independent than it is now, but you know there's a whole discussion already about how much of that government is actually its own government or rather a shadow or puppet government of mm-hmm. the PRC, which is now also where all the, you know, the, the, there's a lot of protests that have been happening in Hong Kong for a long time yes. because of that. Yes. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, when they, when they come to Hong Kong, there is also, they never really try to make this a Chinese kind of experience or Hong Kongese experience um because it is mostly about selling the american experience to a chinese audience and or the disney properties as well this is even stronger when shanghai opens but mostly hong kong is not doing all that well because again also different ideas of tourism there um possibly not quite yet the big enough middle class audience and then also just it's a lackluster park when it opens this there isn't all that much there. And then they, they really start to expand over the last years. Um, it's really, really grown. They build a lot of unique experiences there, which then also makes it more interesting for international visitors that may be yeah. familiar with the other parks. Um, and, and then it kind of takes off. I don't actually have numbers on like how well it is doing now because it's also very tricky to find out in that particular case. But at least the feeling seems to be that it's doing better since it's much expanded but it's less about really like cultural sensitivity comes in in terms of like what do i offer in which language again so that's important there is a lot in cantonese um there like like the the right narrations of the shows obviously that's all there's hardly anything in english available i mean part like it's not true it's hong kong so it's english and cantonese at all times whereas in shanghai there's hardly any english Sure. Um, I'm I'm intrigued at this notion of of as you're talking about rides and park and design elements that are more uh, of interest to the international yeah goer, uh, tourist. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what these parks? As you say, if people in the in those in China and, and Hong Kong are going to these parks as much for an American experience as anything else. So, what are these other these other ideas that they're offering in these parks? I mean, it's it's tricky. So it's not um, because they're much less less american themed um like there isn't any like most of the like both hong kong and shanghai are basically complete almost completely stripped of what we would assume is like american theming like there isn't frontier land mm. um of course. there there is main street usa in the case of hong kong 
Um, but it, there's also some Chinese elements to it, but it's much more about the idea of like the theme park as an American experience and Disney as an American brand. And there's, right. there's a certain argument to be made that at some point this all shifts towards the idea of people want to just go to Disneyland. It's, it is an American thing and you can never completely disentangle Disney from the US, but it's not like people going, oh, well, you know, I want to see America. They know that when they go to Disneyland, they don't see America, but they say Disney and they see that big American or not actually international brand, but it's still very connected to that. Sorry, I was just thinking um, very quickly for people that don't know what Main Street USA is. Oh, yeah, we can also go back um, to that. It yeah. is a very much 1910s representation of the perfect American town with the white wood and the barber shop and the little businesses and uh, a big giant American flag flying all the time and cannons and it's as soon as you take a step into this into Disneyland you are entering that very much Disneyfication of that sort of history where yeah. it is these perfect picket white fence style ideal so yeah, I mean this probably explains another reason I didn't want to go as I got older because I was a David Lynch fan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once you've seen Blue Velvet, white picket fences just make you shudder. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean it's it's turn of the century, so the white picket fences are mostly there in spirit because the white picket fences are the the fifties middle class idea. Yeah. But, true, 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 true. But it's like it's like basically the turn of the century, or even close to like eighteen nineties, nineteen hundreds. Where there yeah. is there is a myth about this being the like a peaceful time like um <laughs> that's kind of the that's <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> uh, yeah no um but basically you know it's after the Civil War and it's before yeah. World War One and yeah. so therefore it must be peaceful <laughs> yeah and there's a whole myth attached to it as well obviously yeah. and so but yeah. obviously the way history and now we're finally coming to that the way history is portrayed in mainstream USA is the, his, the, the history of the America that never was. Yeah, um, exactly. And it's the completely idolized version that, however, 1950s audiences really, really like. Um, and I mean, again, to a certain degree, to this very day. Um, but it's necessarily kind of obviously, again, exclusionary. It's this, this wide fantasy of what America looked like at the turn of the century. It's necessarily white. It's necessarily heteronormative. Um, and so, yeah, um, and then obviously like connected to, if you go to then move on to Frontierland, then you have the frontier myth and then you suddenly have people of color, but they're obviously not the heroes. Like you didn't be already mm -hmm. talked about cowboys and Indians in big, you know, quotation marks here. Um, and, and then, you know, the othering of like, um, people of color in the jungle cruise and and all of yeah, that yeah, yeah. um because again it's always the point of view of the white middle class and in, in adventureland against the, the explorer the colonialist view and frontier i mean the frontier myth is also a colonialization of some sort oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. so yeah, yeah, yeah. um but yeah, that like that that whole thing is obviously very very american but at the same time because of the western and that's another big reason why for instance frontierland is a prominent part of disneyland in anaheim of when it opens is that 
Western as a genre and not just with Davy Crockett that we already talked about. Western is the most important genre in the 1950s. Absolutely. Um, Television and cinema yeah. and books. You know, at that point, it's had enough. I mean, that's the point where it's maturing as a genre because yeah. it's been around long enough at that point. And we've moved beyond kind of the simplicity of Tom Mix in the 30s. And we're into, you know, in the 50s is where we're getting uh, the psychological complexity of the James Stewart ones with Anthony Mann. And, you know, we're starting to see uh, John Ford readdressing um, you know, things like the OK Corral myth and, and starting to dig into these ideas, you know. Um, it's actually quite an interesting time because it's, it's, it's that weird thing that happens in media narratives where there is sufficient financial success going on in a particular arena for risks to actually be taken. Yeah. As opposed, you know, because it, it doesn't always work that way. Quite often you take the risks when there's not a lot of money and then it all becomes very secure later on. But there's also this strange thing, particularly in American-funded productions, where you get to a certain level of funding and risks can be taken again because there's everyone is secure in the idea that this production will make money regardless of what you do on screen yeah. <laughs> because people will buy the tickets. Um, it's a real... Yeah, no, the, we, we did one episode on the Western today, but we haven't done a any episodes yet on the Western as a genre over no. time. And I think at some yeah. point we will, I would, I would love to do that. Not least because it gives me an excuse to um, break out a couple of my box sets. <laughs> um, but um, coming back to your point about uh, the experiences and um, the periods of history in the park. So we've got a couple of other questions here that I think feed in nicely. Uh one is um, the one that you collected, Sabrina, which is about the idea of the, your mm. book as being called the as being the, looking at the middle class kingdom, and what you said earlier about aspirational. Um, and we were we've been just you've literally just been saying in traditional ways who is excluded, who isn't, and the viewpoint. But obviously, in the current era of Disney, we now exist in the twenty first century at a point in time where, despite still proclaiming I, I mean i pers this is a personal entirely personal comment it has no basis in historical mm. fact it irritates the heck out of me that we still that that disney still maintains this idea that royalty matters um, <laughs> but yeah, just, just you know i just I, the princesses thing is a whole other thing but but at least now you have uh, a variety of cultures and races represented within that Mm -hmm. And there's been a distinct effort to engage with Hawaiian culture and, um, you know, black American culture through New Orleans. And, you know, there's a, there, there is a greater variety of uh, groups engaged with. Now, to what degree do you think this is an attempt at inclusivity or is it uh, because these people themselves have actually now moved into the middle classes in America or is it actually something that is still exclusionary in other ways? I think both. Like, um, um, there's definitely um, a big part is, I think, why the like not only the representation in in the text basically has changed, but also the makeup of the visitors, the guests to the park. Is because again, the 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 middle class has changed. Like, the middle class now is a lot more racially diverse than the 1950s one. I mean, two limits, but like, if you just look at it, um, and it's like, also, if you look at how the parks are being advertised, like if you just go to the website for Walt Disney World Florida, there's always, you know, 
pictures, obviously, of families. Quite often it's a black family now. Um, and I mean, again, it's really hard to get into like only Disney has the numbers of the racial makeup of visitors, but also, I mean, cast members a bit as well. And so I think there's a change, but obviously it's always to a point. Um, and I think the racial diversity for, in terms of representational standpoint is very important and they do have a look to that, but it's still, yeah, I mean, it's it's not what it could be or should be possibly. I think Marvel Cinematic Universe is really interesting in that regard because they are really actively pushing for better representation diversity, but also because they realize that that makes money. Like the massive success of Black Panther, um, all of these things. And I think that's shifting into the parks because the parks always kind of have that constant relationship to obviously to all the other um, uh, intellectual properties that Disney owns. And I mean, they're mm -hmm. building all these Marvel lands now. Um, so, and you can meet Black Panther and, and, and all of that. But it's, I mean, it's always, it has its very obvious limits and what kind of representation you can get and, and all of that. But I think the shift is still noticeable. Um, and yet at the same time, I mean, there is no effort to take out um, than the quote unquote like native or tribes or whatever, like that the representation in the Jungle Cruise that's race, racist and offensive still. I mean, there's there's been changes to Pirates of the Caribbean of a different nature yes. to do with that, but it's like the Jungle Cruise is still there. <laughs> or the, the Enchanted Tiki Room is still there despite there also being Moana. So, yeah. I was gonna say, the important thing to do with like when Moana came out um, was that they were also opening a Polynesian resort in uh, Polynesia. Uh, I dull, don't know exactly where it is, uh, but obviously in integration and advertising and mm. they had the voice actress who played Moana advertising it and uh, it's lovely to see them actually diversifying their characters, especially for Disney uh, princesses, uh, because it means that someone like Evie, my daughter, gets to watch other cultures on screen. But we've still got to remember that it's white culture taking these things. And even though they are speaking to Polynesian experts, historians, uh, culturalists, all this sort of thing, it's all directed by two white people so it's always going to be through that filter so yeah and i mean the i mean i i'm not sure the timeline for like the resort they have in hawaii is called alani and it's been there a lot longer than moana though oh yes sorry. but they but they basically still i mean obviously you do tie it in like you will be able to meet moana at alani i'm very certain of that um <laughs> and yeah, I mean, Stitch, I've been there. Yeah, Stitch, definitely. Um, and Lilo. Um, but but I mean, it, it, Moana doesn't exist because Alani exists. It's mostly like we have Alani, so we might as well also, you know, there, there okay. is. So that, that isn't the kind of cynical reason why Moana exists. But it's true that, and I mean, I know, I happen to know the production designer of Moana. Uh, Ian so Gooding. Um, and, but yeah, it's true. Like the, the majority of the team working on Moana as creators is white and not Polynesian themselves. But again, yeah, 
they take cultural trips and stuff. We might have to have you back on for something like for a conversation about Moana and Lilo and Stitch because I, I remember I saw Lilo and Stitch all the Lilo. way back when it came Lilo. out, and I remember thinking to myself, "This is brilliant," but I'm also seeing things I did never, I never expected to see in a Disney film. Mm. Um, not least the idea of a family who are you know working class on welfare, all the issues of you know real issues in Hawaii, um, and. And also the the way it dealt with with with, with Lilo and her dreams Lilo. and her visions and Lilo, sorry, <laughs> her dreams and her visions. You know, just just I I really I I I think it's one of the best things they've done. And the fact that none of their films since seem to engage with those ideas and instead have gone off in a very different direction. You know, restoring the idea of princesses and lineages and power across the world. You know, instead, I I find that. Well, it's something for another time. I think there's a discussion mm-hmm. there to be had um, on another cast. So uh, let's. So um, Jenna, you were. Do you want to ask the question that was brought up by your husband? Yeah, sure. Um, I put out. So next time we have a guest, just to let listeners know, we will be asking for questions. Uh, so this time we did get a question from Jack, who is my husband. Of if you could add any period of history to the parks, what would it be and why? Yeah, I saw that, and I'm still don't know. I still don't know how to answer that. Actually, um, so there is that whole, and I mean, I might use it as a moment to talk about Disney's America, which is a theme park that was never built, um, which was supposed to deal with different periods of American history, um, and. Yeah, I mean that. Like, I can go into more detail on why that was built because it's it's a whole thing. But yes. it's um, for me. I mean, I studied American history, so obviously, I would probably like to see a representation of that. I mean, obviously, Disney is still doing that, and it's it's quite often problematic. But it's yeah. I mean, I I actually would have liked to see a version of that park. Um, mm. I guess. But I also know that historical theming is very, very complicated. So I can't actually say, oh, you know, that's a time I would like to go back to. I mean, they do quite like kind of the architecture of Liberty Square and the Magic Kingdom or the American yeah. Adventure Pavilion in Epcot, which is all kind of like um, the time of like the American Revolution. Um, so I do have kind of a soft spot for that. I also really like playing Assassin's Creed 3 and I wrote yes. a whole article where I compare kind of the theming of that to, to the American Adventure Pavilion and all of that. But, um, <laughs> but at the same time, obviously, it's problematic because, I mean, at no point are we addressing the fact that the founding fathers were almost all slaveholders, etc. So... Like there's there's like the two sides of me. One of them is a historian who, at the same time, because I'm a historian, also has a certain interest in you know the 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 time travel aspect of it all and seeing the kind of theming. And I have a yeah, as I said, I have a soft spot for it. But at the same time, I'm also still again I'm a historian, and so I I cannot unsee kind of the gaps and the problems. So it's I don't know. I don't think there yeah. is any time period where I would be completely satisfied with the way it is represented. Even though I mean, I made like the like kind of the cosmetic things about it, like the architecture or I don't know, uniforms, costuming, that kind of thing. But 
I think being a historian sometimes ruins things for you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what I, and that's not Disney, but what I also quite like is um, the, like, in Universal Studios in, in Florida, one of the hotels is, like, a 1950s thing, like, 1950s Ooh. nostalgia, Cabana Bay. Yeah. Um, it's called, and I really like that kind of the mid-century modern architecture and that kind of thing. So, I mean, all of these things are fun, but they always obviously remain a style. Um, I mean, I'm also dying to go to the, um, the what is it, uh, a JFK in New York at the airport. They now have the that hotel and now I'm, mm. <sighs> what is it? Um, one of the old airlines from like the 50s and 60s, they're kind of jet age style. So uh -huh. like, sorry? Is it Pan Air? Um, not Pan Am, it would do because... Yeah, uh, I now okay. I have to Google it. But anyway... I was say, the, last, the last time I was at JFK, they didn't have that. So, no, yeah. they're just open. And, wow. But, but I mean, yeah, that's sort, sort of the... I really like the aesthetics of the jet age, but at the same time, the 50s same. and 60s, you know, like... Um, Segregation. Yep. Uh, yep. No, I'm with you on this. Homophobia, <laughs> like the Lavender scare, the McCarthyism. Like I don't need that. It, it's yeah. yeah, yeah. Like so, no, basically, right. yeah. It's yeah. the kind so, of history that a lot of people at the moment are saying is British history or is American history. They T W A S T airline. I'm oh, Transworld Airlines. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember T W A. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, this is this is where it gets interesting. I mean, I think Sabrina, if you're interested, I think we should have uh, one of the other episodes we should maybe do and have you on. Is um, I think it would be interesting. So, so the one, there's a phrase I use often, um, well, I have used often now for about fifteen years, I think, 12, 10 years, um, which is with regards to the way history historical narratives have been. Uh, put across in fiction more and more, which is the HBOification of history. Mm. Yeah. In that the formula they developed when they and the BBC first made Rome has become the, the, the has become almost a default approach in TV and cinema, and to some degree, and it was already there in books to some degree, um, for how history is turned into entertainment. Mm. And I feel like. Uh, it would be interesting to have that discussion with you because I think that's also affected very much the perception both in and outside of America of American history itself. Mm. Um, but that's a whole other thing at another time. Um, so uh, I was going to say, so we've answered all the questions we've been given as well as talking about the elements from your book. The last question, which uh, we haven't covered, and I think this is, I think we've sort of talked about it just now. We've talked about being... You know what what it is you'd like to see, and, and you've said how difficult that is, and I think that answers to some degree the question of whether being a fan hinders you or not in this area. I know Jenna is uh, being a fan has actually helped drive her studies and mm -hmm. her views. Um, I got into marketing and media because I was a teacher of history and English who was a fan. I was hired very specifically because on DVD and film because I knew the product. Mm -hmm. And because my boss at the time said, I'd, I need someone who knows the product because I, I don't want to have time to teach them that, but I have time to teach you how to market and produce because that, that's easier. I can teach you that. 
Um, and I participated, and at the time, so this is 2003, there were no, there were no, the, no one was talking, the long tail was still, you know, under development, the phrase Uncanny Valley hadn't been used, there was a lot of lingo that, about things that were internet related that were still on the way, and the only thing, I, I, I was going into an area that was fan specific already, that was already rife with piracy, and I was seeing mainstream media debates not attached to it, and so I was, I, I asked a friend of mine, um, well, he's now a friend of mine. He was a friend of a friend at the time, Dr. Matt Hills, mm-hmm. who wrote a book at the time called, in 2001 called Fan Studies. Yeah, yeah, so I read that and I was like, ah, this is my way into how I market. And then he and his, he and a, a, another colleague did a, a further study, which I don't think got turned into a book. I think it was just a simple, it was a straightforward uh, um, postgrad study, but they asked me to participate in it where they were interviewing fans. Mm-hmm. And they were interviewing. This is so. This is 2003, and they were interviewing fans about their interests, their journey, and they took me out of the study in the end because apparently I skewed all the data. <laughs> Interesting. So um, I was very aware that being a fan in 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 the media, because I met a lot of other people who were fans, and that's how they got into the business. And I was very aware um, as time rolled on I was meeting more and more people in academia Mm. who were fans and I find it really really interesting because I do think it's a really important part of why you do what you do I don't think it's a the the question is does being a fan hinder you I I would be really do you think it hinders you I I think it drives I think it's part of what drives people yeah I think so too actually um Obviously, like the, I think where that question comes from all of the time, um, or why why it comes up so often in in discourse of like, you know, um, I'm an academic, but I also happen to be a fan. How do I handle that? And I mean, there's that term ARCA fan. And, <laughs> and, I love ARCA fan. Yeah, but the thing is, it's been thrown around as kind of a more almost derogatory term. Yeah. So, like, I mean... So I have, I'm working or have worked on two books to do with Star Trek. So one book has hey. just come out. <laughs> shout out to that one too. Uh, it's an hey. edited collection, Star Trek Discovery, with Liverpool University Press, uh, which Fantastic. I co-edited with my co- colleague Marika Spichala. But um, so that came out, and but I remember like some of the the like blind peer review feedback was like oh you know we had the acknowledgements i think at the beginning of the book at first um and then you know the book and apparently the review was like well you know having read the acknowledgements i think they should be moved to the end of the book because if you happen to read them before you read the rest of the book you get the impression that the editors or the authors even maybe fans and it's not very critical um and I kind of see where that came from because obviously in the acknowledgements, like we do, like I'm talking about myself as well, like I'm thanking a bunch of the actors from the show um, yeah. because because of the book, I've, I've spoken to them and I have a connection with them. But that doesn't mean that all the essays in the book aren't critical of the text. They certainly are. Yeah. But there's, there's that. And I mean, so with Disney as well, like there's still so much like 
criticism, especially if you're in the historic disciplines of like, well, you know, this is a literal Mickey Mouse topic. And <laughs> and then also if you're a fan, like how can you critically engage with that? And the thing is, again, you need, I think, to study something like this in such detail, the kind of knowledge you acquire from being a fan is something that cannot be replaced or ever like be made up if you're not the fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I started the like uh, it was my dissertation, as I said, and I started it in 2014. But around the time, like the first the the two to three years before that, I had started to go back to the parks a lot, and I was really really interested in them and started to read up on them and mm. and you know engage in the fandom so to speak because I followed all of these. You know, there's so many blogs and, and, and social media pages out there that and fora and whatever that deal with the parks. And it was already in there to kind of research my own trips. And so I already knew that existed and um, that where to look for things. And and the same with Star Trek, like it came out of just liking the franchise. And um, and then you have a certain knowledge, again, that you can't replace. And I mean, I've read a lot of kind of shoddy academic work on Disney parks, where it's obvious the person has never set foot in one. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, like, or they've visited the website and draw conclusions from the website that are then completely wrong. And yeah, so I think it is like, obviously, it can sometimes you hit moments where you're like, where you're not as critical as you should be, perhaps, but you have to get over that. And I mean, that's also yeah. why we have review, yeah. right? Like, I mean, if I yeah. make a point, and I mean, in the terms of my dissertation, like I had friends and colleagues read it over before I even hand in, and they would come in and be much more critical to something, and I would adjust. And um, and and then obviously at some point with the book now, there was blind peer review from three people. And if they had detected any of that, I'm sure they would have pointed it out. So Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, Anybody, regardless of their origins, anyone who thinks that being a fan of something means you're uncritical of it has never been in a forum, ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the reality is that fans are frequently the most critical people. Yeah. Um, and frequently they are the most critical people, not simply because of a personal response, but because they're too, they're, they are too aware of the behind the scenes. Um, and actually, I think one of the most fascinating things over the course of my life is watching fandom go from being simply a bunch of people who enjoy things mm -hmm. to being almost academic in themselves. You know, you, you, there are people I know whose store of knowledge in a particular thing they love is so detailed and so um, uh, thought through and researched and critical even though they love it, that you're t when you talk to them, you would assume they had a degree in it. Yeah. Um, and as you say, this is something that can't be replaced easily. This is something that is actually, you know, the fact that you took joy in it should never be a reason not to be academic about it and vice versa. Yeah. The fact that you're being academic about something should never be a reason not to enjoy the thing. Yeah. Is my personal view, because I think otherwise, what is the point? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you research it? <laughs> Like two points to that. I mean, if you if you're set out to write a dissertation, um, and certainly within the German system, um, it's already kind of the the goal is to write a book because we have to publish, and obviously yes. in other systems it's getting more and more common to also publish. So what you're actually trying to do is write a book, and if you have to do that for several years, and it will always take several years, 
why do like why work on something you don't care about i i really don't like i mean i respect everyone that does it but i don't understand how you can enter a project are given a dissertation topic and then you deal with it for three to five years like i couldn't have like if i wouldn't be interested yeah. in it and the other thing is so I'm, I'm now compiling a book um which will also hopefully end up with intellect and if they have a book series on fan phenomena so basically fandom uh, of yep. certain franchises and things and i'm doing one on disney and excellent and not have, like if i weren't part of this fandom of some sort i wouldn't be able to identify which topics should even be covered in something like that i think mm, exactly. because i mean some of the things may be obvious like oh frozen was a big thing yeah, yeah we should probably have an article on that or whatever but you know like there's so many other things of like if you're not in the disney parks fandom you probably don't know how many people are out there that are active fans of some of the food you can buy in the parks whoa serious and the purple oh. wall and the purple wall or whatever yeah like it's <laughs> there's so many aspects that i think would not be easy to find out if you actually aren't already at least some very aware of the discourse and follow certain media outlets and and bloggers and whatever and and influences now not that i follow a lot of influences i'm also behind the times i'm 30 I'm apparently <laughs> missing out in a big segment of um, things, but I'm trying to to also now, especially during this book, kind of get more up to date, I think, with the younger uh, segment of the fandom. But it's, yeah, it's just, you wouldn't just know that. And if you don't yeah. know that, how are you supposed to edit a book on it? Right? Yeah, yeah Q, absolutely right. Just yes. to let you know, it is literally, it is a purple wall and there yeah. are fans of it. Yeah, it what? turned into a thing where people posted pictures of themselves in front of it, like Instagram influencers, but also just guests in the parks. And then Disney picked up on that being a thing. And yeah. so they tried to kind of dress up that wall and whatever. And I think at that point, it basically became uncool almost. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also the okay. uh, idea of Disney bounding, which is... yes getting around Disney's own copyright of mm -hmm. dressing up like the characters, but yeah. sort of doing it in a kind of urban or um, your own clothes kind of style. And mm -hmm. unless you're a fan of Disney, you wouldn't really know about that sort no. of thing. And the Akka fan conversation is something that is constantly had in fan studies yeah. circles as well. Um, because... Unless you're into something like, I guess, Supernatural, how are you going to know about the different conversations that are going on about Supernatural? Well, this is where it gets interesting, because I think, I think this is where the academia itself has evolved to some degree this mm -hmm. century. Um, you know, back when I talked to Matt Hills about, you know, when I first met him and his, part, and his uh, um, study partner and we were talking about these things, um, you know, he was renowned for being the person who not just developed the idea helped develop the idea of fans that didn't take it further but was also the person who was moving on uh the doctor who media mm -hmm. studies which of course was a seminal text in the 70s mm. and he was building on that and then of course doctor who came back at which point it was kind of well what do you do because it's a, it's no longer a, a historical study this is actually happening yeah. 
and 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 he was like, well, fine, I'm just diving in. He just dived right in, and so he was emailing Robert Russell T Davis. He was in communication. He got to visit the set. Wow. And all of a sudden, it was like, well, okay, yeah, there's all these people going, oh, oh, should you be? And he's like, well, how else are we going to study mm-hmm. this? We we have an opportunity here to see the, the behind the scenes decisions in real time, and then look at the fan response as it happens. Yeah. And, and and that, of course, informed a huge chunk of his work uh, over time from then. And I think, I think, I think it's like anything, any any aspect. When I was, at, I said this on the show before. When I was at school, my histor- history teacher used to say, um, "We were forbidden from writing essays on anything that was uh, between ten and twenty years, you know, in the last ten or twenty years before the essay." Right? We had that was journalism. Anything before that was history. Mm-hmm. That was that was the kind of rule of thumb they used. Um, but I think it's an interesting reflection on what was perceived to be historical and what wasn't. Um, and I think when it comes to fan studies and academics who are fans and, and, and just general study of things that are in motion in media that we are that are actually happening and are still evolving, um, I actually think it's the other way around. I think actually it's important to f- walk a very fine line between what understanding what, what what is journalism because i know a lot of academics who as you say because you're required to publish especially here in britain there's been a lot of them who've engaged in journalism straight up and then understand how that evolves or links to you what you do academically so if you take dr johnston at ua who is a, another friend who did is a specialist in ealing studios yeah. you know he his big breakout publishing was doing a series of articles for the Huffington Post where he did a, an Ealing diary and he basically watched his way through all the available films one by one. Now, that was for the Huffington Post, so you can imagine that he didn't exactly have a lot of words to yeah. be able to say a lot, <laughs> article by article. But of course, for him, that's publicity, that's engagement, that's, that's, that's not purely academic writing, that's a different function. Obviously, that all then leads into a book later on where every one of those articles suddenly expands out into a bigger chapter. Yeah. And I think that's the thing people forget is that actually as academics and fans, you, there are different, there's slightly different toolkits and mm. skill sets that you can apply. And actually, I think being a fan is really vital to these because for so many reasons, not least the ones you've mentioned, but also because it allows you to then understand what is it you're doing. Are you doing journalism? Are you doing academia? Are you doing, are you studying? Are you simply enjoying? You know, what, what's the point of what you're doing and how and why? It gives you critical, dis- it, it allows you to, it, it, you, it just needs you to be self-aware. I think that's the most important thing. If you're a fan and you're not self-aware, it's probably very hard to be academic about the topic. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there are certain traps you can certain like fall into when you mm. when you're a fan, and uh, and I mean, there's there's just now a massive discussion going on about racism and in, in fandom. Yeah, because yep. Yep. it certainly does exist, obviously. Oh, oh god. Um and and but also then racism and fan studies, and I mean, there's I think yes. like I I like just really starting out to properly do something with fan studies myself. I don't want to declare myself an expert in a lot of the discourse that's going on, but at least from what I've been following, it's there's obviously fan studies is very white, which also has to do with the fact that all of academia is very white. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And yep. so, but also fandom being very gatekeepy, fandom isn't actually that wide, but like the visibility of the people um, is quite often like the most visible um, actors within the fandom are often white, uh, which again, because all of this, all of like, whether it's fandom or academia, all of it is, is based in structural racism and other structural inequalities. Um, and I do think we believe fandom to be more open, possibly also because it's one of the spaces where queerness is very, very visible, but yep. at the same time, it's often white queerness. So it's, mm-hmm. so all of that happens. So, and I mean, obviously now like editing a book on Disney fandom, I took a step back and was like, well, you know, look, I'm kind of aware that the majority of my author lineup I have right now is very white. Um, and now all of this discussion is going on, maybe I should, you know, at least, uh, first of all, have an article that directly tackles race in the Disney fandom, but then obviously also diversify my lineup of authors, no matter what they work on. And I mean, I think that's what we all do, but obviously me being like kind of this project started out of just collecting some people that are Disney scholars that I've interacted with on Twitter, that I met at conference, etc. And and then going from there and just being very enthusiastic and meeting all of these nice people. But then once you actually have a book to put out, you suddenly have to take a step back and like, well, I mean, a lot of this may be my own bubble. Maybe I should, you know, yeah. broaden that a yeah. bit. And I don't blame anybody that publishes a book necessarily that comes out of that moment. But I think when you move on, you have to take that extra step and say like, well, but what am I doing here? Like, am I actually giving all of these people a voice that maybe should have a voice in this conversation? It's just that I'm not connected to them because I exist in my own academic bubble and I exist in my own bubble as a white person. So there is a lot to be done there. And I mean, again, like, I mean, even the study, it's kind of interesting that like fandom is, very female as well like i mean all of the shapers of fandom spaces are women um and but then you look at who drove forward the study of fandom and uh like no offense to henry jenkins or mad hills (laughs) or you know yeah yeah, i know what you're saying but you're men um, yeah. And it's it's like it's not like they're not aware. Sometimes even aware that the fandom is that female, but it's just if you look at the movers and shakers of fan studies, they're again male, and then again has to do with who even is in a position in academia to engage with such you know frivolous topics. Because I mean, coming back to like is is maybe being a fan hindering me. I think the bigger hindrance is that I'm somebody that's in history that looks at pop culture. Yeah. Yes. So would, that's would, another level of gatekeeping that happens here. And it, I don't even want to talk about, you know, the other, like, there's still certainly sexism at work and there's still yeah. queerphobia at work that might target me. But I think the bigger part is even the larger gatekeeping of, like, who controls the discipline and what are you even allowed to do in a discipline. And once you're tenured, you can do everything you want basically and i'm not and i'm still doing these topics but that doesn't translate to a job so there's so (laughs) much going on yeah and i think i think i think we're in a period of time where academia in some ways is actually going to have to redefine itself yeah Yeah. massively from the ground up 
I think the only way to address the structural elements you're talking about is to stop and consider what is the entire point of it all in the first place. Because as somebody who's worked in media production, one of the, but, but has an academic mindset, one of the things I always found interesting, particularly if I had to go and lecture at places, um, I always found it interesting that I was often the only person in the room with hard numbers. Mm. Because I worked on them and I brought them with me, and I always made sure I had permission to share certain numbers and yeah. not others. Yeah. And so I, I, I was once part of a seminar at UEA, and I was one of three people from the media present. Mm. And I the topic I'd chosen, I can't remember what it was, but I remember using Warner Brothers figures that were publicly available, and at least publicly available to me in the business, because the main database in British a home video that gives you actual concrete sales mm. figures was mm. a subscription it was a subscription subscription service mm. with no academic license cool. so you had to be in the business so i was i was using it daily for sales sales analysis and so i could pull all these figures and use them and so i get up there and i start talking about you know what watching how you see the relationship between marketing to a fan group versus marketing to a wider group versus sales and you know looking at concrete examples and i wasn't i was delivering the lecture i wasn't i was paying some attention to the audience in terms of response but i wasn't you know i was doing my job and afterwards one of my friend uh, dr john clements was said to turn to me afterwards and said you do realize that the moment you started putting figures up everybody started writing <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Oh, he said, he said, yeah." They, he said, "This is the thing that's missing from a lot of this, this of the academic world is the hard data." Yeah. He said, "I haven't seen some of the numbers you've given me." And he says, yeah, "I work with you sometimes." And I was like, "Yeah, I know." I said, "This is," th but I said, "This is why that service should have an academic license because all of you should be able to pay that, or every institution should be able to pay that the, that database money because they need it to survive as a database, and then you guys would all have access to, you know, figures that go back to VHS era." Oh, you know, and it's data. you know it was kind of <laughs> yeah, but but, but I, I I think it's I think it's another reason why we need to rethink how academia works because too often discussions are happening as you say in a bubble, and it's a bubble that actually is hard to burst because of the access. Yeah. It's not just gatekeeping within academia; it's gatekeeping outside mm -hmm. of academia in the subjects you want to study as well. Yeah, yeah. and between disciplines i mean every five minutes a sociologist discovers fans <laughs> oh oh that's got to be my new status on facebook yeah and it's true like every so often like like i don't even blame them because i know that because there is so little interdisciplinary exchange quite often especially if you're somebody that maybe is just coming out of um a degree, you know, and then maybe yeah. it's looking into what to do with their dissertation. And so they're necessarily very new to the field. I'm not even saying they're ignorant all the like, no, but it's no. just like, oh, my God, like this is fandom and this is a sociologist. Like, obviously, it's interesting to sociologists. Like, it's not this yeah. a no brainer. But then basically they show up and like somebody pops up sometimes in your Twitter feed and and they connect it to one fan scholar or something and then they're suddenly like well you know um here's 20 to 30 years of literature this yes. is a developed sub-discipline of cultural studies at this point um good luck reading yeah. like um 
but yeah. but that is the problem like for that to happen it is not just because somebody shows up and is completely ignorant and thinks their field is the best it's just they they were so siloed off while we study our graduate and postgraduate degrees that we don't know what's going on in the other fields and only once we start to do a dissertation or something that's a bigger project like i certainly read from a lot of disciplines reading up on theme parks just because mm. I tried to read everything there was, and it is very, very interdisciplinary. Um, but before that, I wouldn't have a clue what some of the other yeah. disciplines are doing or not doing. But yeah, yeah. no, I, I've been a firm believer in interdisciplinary since I was at school because I'm fortunate enough to have done a, an international baccalaureate. So to me, I just don't understand why you wouldn't be interdisciplinary. Yeah. The worst thing about going to a British university after doing a baccalaureate was the narrowing of everything. Yeah. I was just like, why are you guys locking all this down? And the, the worst thing was, I was at a university where if you were in, the, in, in any of the science faculties, they insisted on making sure you did an arts course. Hmm. But there was no equivalent for those of us in arts. And I was like, what's the point of that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, my friends doing chemistry and maths were like, oh, we get to do a horror movie course. Great. <laughs> and I'm like... Damn you! I want to do that course. I'm doing law and history, but also I would like to do some physics. Can I have some astrophysics, please? No. See, okay, great. Well, you know, there's something to be said. I, I, I think, it, I think interdisciplinary. That again, this is why it needs to be built, from, rebuilt from the ground up. There needs to be great. Yeah, you know, again, another form of gatekeeping that needs to be removed because actually it is vital that moving forward we academia to continue to be relevant and to continue mm. to produce things that will affect human thinking on a wider level out into the mainstream there needs to be a sense of what is interdisciplinary and connecting up joining up the dots it's got to happen I mean, because without that academia as, as as some people already have felt for many many years is just irrelevant to the mainstream and how we do things i was going to say with my university uh when i was doing my undergrad uh which i can now say woo, um there no one seemed to know that you could go do classes on another course mm. if you wanted, because mm. as long as you got your cat points, you mm. could do whatever. And I actually went over to do a uh, religious, religion, ethics and philosophy class in Love, Sex and Death, because I was like, wow, that sounds fascinating. Mm. But so many people didn't realise that you could cross disciplines mm. and you didn't just have to stay on the strict history course especially for something like history because ish, history goes into every single subject every single mm. subject has a history and mm, mm, mm. the the fact of it gets so ignored in general like how much funding is not going into history is kind of terrible so yeah mm. yeah and yeah yeah it's it, and i mean in in germany our system is like we've transitioned to the BAMA system to be more competitive in the international market and and, and not let like make make more exchange possible and all of that because before that we had a different system of degrees and but it's it's still like I was just talking about this with my partner who's Australian and he's completely flabbergasted by the fact that if you do a BA like a Bachelor of Arts um it's you actually do that in a specific subject in germany mm. rather mm. than Same as here. 
rather than like have open courses and then kind yeah. of specialize by the you can have a, you can end up with a specialization by the end if you pick the majority of like history classes or whatever but basically you go in rather open in terms of like humanities courses and in germany you pick your very specific subject so i have a bachelor of arts in north american studies so and I mean, that's still a broad field, but I mean, you can you can also just do that with a much more narrow field as well. And yeah, but it it, it just contributes to the silo, um, siloing off of disciplines, I think, that from other countries, yeah. we're not even used to the fact, like we don't have a college, essentially, like we don't, we just finish school and then pick one subject at a university that's already very narrow. Um, yeah, it seems like as you go through school, so you go from primary to secondary to then sixth form, then to university, mm -hmm. it's slowly narrowing the subjects that you are doing. Mm -hmm. So going from key stage yeah. three to GCSE, is it key stage three? I can't remember. So key stage three is year seven to nine to so, uh, yeah. 11 to 15. Uh, so 11 to 14, and then it's Key Stage 4, which is GCSE. Yeah. So uh, GCSE is taught one way, and yeah. one set of ideas, and then you get then you narrow to A-level. So we go from 10 subjects to 3 or 4, yep. and then from the 3 or 4, they're supposed to go down to whatever the main subject is at university, which is just bonkers. Mm. I mean, how do you choose to specialise when you're 18? <laughs> you don't know what you want to do, even at 18, other than have fun. The amount of other students in my course that were like, I'm I'm coming here as a teenager. I don't know. I, I happen to be quite good at history, so I chose history. So, and it's like, and you can see them really kind of, they're not sure what they're going to do with the specialisation. Yeah. They just know that they like it. So, And I think, I think maybe that comes back to our point about fans. At least if you're coming in with an interest in something and a passion in something, you can build on that. Mm. Um so I think that's a good place to, to end this discussion. It's mm -hmm. been wonderful to talk to you, Sabrina. Thank you so much for coming yes, on Yes, thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, and thanks to you for having me on. And probably Excellent. now more episodes as well. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> um, certainly. Uh, so where can people find you, Sabrina, online if they want to talk to you? Um, so my like official work Twitter account is probably your best bet, which is at S. Uh, Mittermeier. So uh, oh God, uh, what what is it in English? Unterstrich. I don't know. S uh, on the line. Mittermeier, which oh, okay. is my last name, which is M I W T E R M E I E R. Um, but you've also tagged me on your social media, so that's probably the easiest to find me there. Um, I am also on Facebook, but I tend to keep that to more like friends and. Fair enough. Right, but so Twitter is your best bet, and um, there you can also probably f easily find an email for me, or if you Google me, there's some way to reach out if you want to do so. Okay, fantastic. Jenna, where can people find you? You online? can find me at Ndeskokissi on Twitter, um, and you can also find me about on the Bunkerzilla blog, writing various things. Um, yeah, it's I've got lots of things to do as well <laughs> so yes <laughs> right and then people can find me at 48 consultancy on most social media uh we also have real history uk as a twitter handle and also as a facebook handle so you can find us in either place if you want to talk to us further yes um and uh yeah you know uh 
feel free to reach out if you've liked what you've heard then please feel free to buy us a drink at coffee.com forward slash 4 day publishing mm-hmm. um, and you know like and subscribe on whichever network you are using to download this from I'll let review. us know what you think oh and review yes please do <laughs> give us feedback we're always interested always interested to know what people think what people want to hear more about or less about or uh, you know get suggestions for future episodes as well um, Sabrina let's remind everyone again one more time what's the name of your book it's our cultural history of the Disneyland theme parks middle class kingdoms and it's out in October with intellect in the UK and the rest of Europe and the University of Chicago Press in the United States and I'm so Fantastic buying a copy. <laughs> and it's cheap. I want to highlight that. It's affordable. Um, yes. So, yeah, it's. I keep forgetting how much it is right now, but it's... It was about £25. Yeah, it's £25. Which, for an academic book, is very affordable. Yeah. Yes. It has to be said. People who don't buy academic books don't realise just how affordable that is. So, Okay, folks, thank you very much yes. indeed. It's been a pleasure, Sabrina. We'll hope to have you on another episode. Uh, right. Thank you for listening, folks. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.